You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Everybody's sitting comfortably. So good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre. I'm from the education department here, and it is a delight tonight to be introducing Fred Richin, who's the second in a series of talks sponsored by Penny Rubinoff, and we're very grateful to Penny for this sponsorship in this great series. The next one will be Stephen Shaw, by the way, and I'll remind you of the date at the end. So Fred Richin is Professor of Photography and Imaging at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. He's the author of After Photography, W.W. W. Norton, 2009, which, by the way, has been translated into Chinese, Korean, French, Spanish, and Turkish, which is pretty interesting. He also wrote, in our own image, The Coming Revolution in Photography, Aperture, 1990, the first book on the digital revolution and photography. He began writing on digital imaging in 1984 for the New York Times magazine, and his articles, essays, and books have been translated into many languages. Richard is co-founder of Pixel Press, an organization dedicated to creating new forms of media and advancing human rights. Former picture editor of the New York Times magazine, former executive director of Camera Arts magazine, and was founding director of the photojournalism and documentary photography educational program at the International Center of Photography. The website he created for the New York Times in 1996, Bosnia Uncertain Paths to Peace, was nominated by Times for the Pulitzer Prize in Public Service. Richard has also curated numerous exhibitions, including one in Latin American photography, another on Brazilian photographer Sebastião Salgado, and a recent exhibition for the New York Photo Festival called Bodies in Question. So please come up. Hi, thank you, and thank you all for coming. I'm going to be talking basically about a bunch of ideas, and I would hope that you would have questions, thoughts, comments at the end, so it becomes more of a discussion. But I will try to put out a few ideas and see see where we go with that. So in 1984, as Jillian mentioned, I wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine, which was about six years before Photoshop came out. And the idea was, at that point, there were Cytex machines and machines like it, which were half a million dollar machines, for which you had to study for two weeks, kind of like becoming an airplane pilot. It was very, very technical on the screen to use. But there were certain publications, more wealthy publications, advertising agencies, that were able to use them. My idea in 1984 was to alert the world that if we didn't set parameters for what you can do to the image, then at some point the image will start to lack credibility in terms of the mass media and the press. To be clear at the beginning, I do not believe photography is objective. I do believe all photographs are interpretive, they're always subjective, but to a certain extent they have been fact-based. So I wanted to introduce the idea of the pixels, the picture elements. The pixels are different than the analog are these discrete segments. The difference between the analog and, the di and, and, and digital is normally thought of as the continuous versus the discrete. 
So each of these pixels could be changed at will, and because you have that ability to change it at will, it's kind of like the hammer and the nail. To the hammer, everything looks like a nail. Once you put this on the screen, people wanted to change it. So I did it in the beginning by a photograph of the New York skyline. This was in the New York Times Magazine. And then I showed them this version of the New York City skyline. If you notice, there's the Empire State, the uh, Statue of Liberty is on land, and the Eiffel Tower is there, and the Transamerica Pyramid landed. I'll go back. You can see that the Empire State Building moved uptown a few blocks, the uh, Citicorp Tower, the top twisted the other way, and so on. And the idea was just to say, look, we can do this at this point. It struck me at that time, to, to a certain extent, as, as a kind of a god complex. I flew back from Boston where we did this work. I landed and I looked at the same skyline. And the photograph was so wedded with the sense of the real at that point in 1984, the fact that it was possible to change all this, to me, began. That's why I wrote the first book called In Our Own Image, The Coming Revolution in Photography, because my feeling was that a lot of image manipulation software was to go against the idea that, that the photograph is a recording of what's there, but to make the photograph a recording of what we want to be there. So the, the digital revolution in terms of the uh, press, in my opinion, could be pointed at this cover in 1982 of the National Geographic. They had a horizontal photograph of the pyramids of Giza. They needed to put it on a vertical cover, so they rotated the, the pyramid on the left, so it's more behind the pyramid on the right. And when I called the editor-in-chief of National Geographic and asked them why they did this, because at that time National Geographic only looked at uh, color portfolios, Kodachrome, Ektachrome wasn't permitted, black and white, forget it. It was kind of the high priest of, of, of editorial photography. And he said, it's really nothing. All we did was go back in time and move the photographer a couple of meters to one side to get a different point of view. So by twisting the pyramid, to him it was just getting another perspective. And he saw nothing wrong with the idea of going back in time and moving the photographer to one side or the other. To me, it was science fiction. But to him, it was matter of fact. When I mentioned to a, uh, a famous street photographer in France, uh, quite a while ago, that we can now go back in time and move him anywhere we want, his entire life's work, he turned very pale. He was in his 70s at the time, and he, he looked at me and he said, but they won't do that in black and white, will they? And I assured him they would never do it in black and white. <laughs> this is the first future news photograph published, as far as I know. This is 1994 Newsday, which at that time was one of the top 10 newspapers in the United States. And the idea was Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan, who were vying for the ice skating Olympic medals. The boyfriend of Tanya Harding had clobbered uh, Nancy Kerrigan in the leg. And they were now two meet at practice. So this is a photograph of the next day, according to Newsday. So again, it was the idea of time travel, the idea of science fiction, the idea that the photograph is not of the present viewed as the past, but we could also see the, the future. In the smaller type, they say it's a photocomposite, but most people didn't read the smaller type. And this was the one that people began to take notice of it. This is the O.J. Simpson when he was arrested on suspicion of a double murder. 
On the Newsday cover, which was side by side on the newsstand with the Time cover, they were both Los Angeles Police Department mugshots. The Newsday one was the mugshot. Uh, the, the type trail of blood was quite incendiary because he was innocent at that point until and if proven guilty. The one on the right obviously was, was manipulated. And the overwhelming majority of Time readers uh, criticized it on the basis of racism. They felt that when O.J. Simpson, the, the great football star and, and celebrity uh, spokesperson for Hertz Rent-A-Cars, was a celebrity, he was lighter skin, but as soon as he was arrested and alleged for a double murder, he was darkened, put out of focus, a kind of a spotlight on him. And this was a few days after the arrest. The editor-in-chief of Time magazine the following week said, all we did was, quote, take a common mugshot and raise it to the level of art with no sacrifice to truth. So according to Time Magazine, the one on the right was art and does not sacrifice truth at all. This is the first news photograph that I'm aware of, which was made without the, the, uh, either a, a photographer or a camera being involved. It was a, a Swedish airplane crash, and eight Finnish newspapers ran this so-called news photograph without any uh, explanation of the crash itself. It turned out what they did was they asked three eyewitnesses what happened, and the eyewitnesses told them, and they composited it and felt they could run it as a, as a um, news photograph. It made me think that if only Monica Lewinsky told us what happened with Bill Clinton, we wouldn't have had to spend two years thinking about it. And this is one, Lance Corporal Boudreaux saved my dad and he rescued my sister. On the right, on the left, Lance Corporal Boudreaux killed my dad and he knocked up my sister on the left. Uh, there was actually a website where you could make your own sign and, and, and put it up. And I asked the US military which one was correct and I did a Freedom of Information Act to get them to respond and, and it turned out they did one year of research and, and they did not know. So this is the one that really, really got me. Uh, and, and I'm opening with these things not to just talk about credibility of news media, but I'm really opening with these images to say that the artists have been a lot slower than the uh, corporations, the corporate media, in terms of playing with some of the ideas involved in the digital. Uh, National Geographic in 82, which is just about 30 years ago, was already involved in time travel and so on. And it, they also had access to this equipment. Artists didn't have access. It was too expensive at the time uh, to use. But this is the one that really got me. I was a psychology uh, major in university, and Freud obviously was a big deal. And only when I was in a, in a panel discussion, a, a conference with the guy who changed the Matt me, uh, his name is Matt Mehuren, who changed the O.J. Simpson cover to make it darker, did he let us know that this, in fact, is not Freud. I mean, I thought that Time Magazine, if they put Freud on the cover, it would be Freud, but it wasn't Freud. It was Matt Mahuren, the same guy who just made himself up to look like Freud. So it seems that Cindy Sherman and Time Magazine kind of were in parallel tracks without really knowing it. So then, you know, there, there's a certain amount of people who are trying to do something about it. This is the Swedish government. And the Swedish government was concerned about body image uh, among young people. 
especially females. In, in Britain and France now, there's been moves in the parliament to legislate against uh, retouching of advertisements uh, so that you would at least have to explain to people it's not the person you're looking at. This, this in fact, is the person, and this, in fact, is what was made of her. And if you click on uh, shirt creases, jawline, nose, lips, and so on and so forth, it's online. You, you see each one how it was changed. The teeth are made uh, whiter, the waist is, is cinched, uh, the hair has changed color, and so on and so forth. And it's there for educational reasons so that nobody mixes up what is purported to be real, which is in fact is completely fabricated. So as a result of all this, what's, what's kind of happened, you know, is that the, the professional photographer, the photojournalist, has having more and more a difficult time of convincing people of what they're showing actually happened. There's a skepticism in the public among media in general, but particularly around imagery. So that we find in the last 10 years, the most iconic images, in my opinion, are mostly made by non-professionals at this point. You know, certainly Abu Ghraib, uh, Neto Sultan in, in Iran, which was a passerby with a cell phone camera, uh, the recent pictures of Gaddafi and his son, uh, photographed by Libyans themselves, you know, soldiers as opposed to professionals. And even the, uh, the Occupy Wall Street, this is on Tumblr, uh, you know, it, it's not necessary anymore to have the professional. And in fact, it actually is harmful often at this point to have the professional because the professional brings a kind of a stylized, uh, somewhat suspicion of manipulation in ways that the, the amateur with a cell phone doesn't. So for example, the professional made this image, the professional has the press pass, uh, mission accomplished a year after the invasion of Iraq. It's a complete lie, the, the, the image in terms, there was no mission accomplished, but it was suited the point of view of, of the president to have it come out. So one becomes a collaborator in a sense by making this image. This was the US invasion of Haiti in 94 to put Aristide in power and so-called bring democracy to uh, Haiti. But if you look at it from the side, this is in fact what it looked like, that image. Right, so this is what you saw in the magazine and this is what it looked like. And obviously the only ones doing the shooting are the photographers. When I, uh, I gave a keynote address a few years ago at the World Press Photo in Amsterdam, and two of the photographers pictured there were very, very angry and wrote uh, to World Press. One of them, in fact, said that I characterized this as a photo opportunity, uh, you know, uh, and he said, it, it, it's not that at all, it's a photographic gangbang. So this won the World Press Photo Award uh, a few years ago. This was after the Israeli bombardment in, in Lebanon and Beirut. This was the picture of the year. So to be the picture of the year is about as good as it gets in terms of an award you could get. It says, original caption, affluent Lebanese drive down the street to look at a destroyed neighborhood in southern Beirut, Lebanon. By putting it online and, and by searching out the people, it turned out that they were not affluent Lebanese. They were the next door neighbors coming back to their building that they had evacuated during the bombardment. And one of the people uh, in, in the car who lived there in the neighborhood said, in fact, 
nobody in the jury would, would ever think that war happens to people who look like them. It only happens to other people. And the fact that we looked like the jury, we looked like you know, the, the Westerners and so on, we had to be tourists because war would never happen to people like us. And again, I think that the person making the cell phone video in the back of the car, I would have at least wanted to be able to click on this image and see a second image of her cell phone video, what she saw versus what the outsider saw who wasn't aware of the circumstance, you know, who didn't speak Arabic and so on. So now we come to the point where the U.S. kills its you know, public enemy number one, Osama bin Laden, but it cannot show a photograph of Osama bin Laden dead for two reasons. One, it doesn't want to inflame people. And number two, because the president said that many people, just because it's a photograph, many people will not believe it at this point. So the, the credibility of the photograph, what I worried about in 1984, in fact, killing the number one enemy of the U.S., the photograph itself lacks credibility because it's too easy for anybody to make it up and we all know all the images that have been made up of, of, of the Osama bin Laden killing. So I'm going to show you a few things uh, you know, that we, we've done with the digital, but first I just want to say two things. One is that the digital media is code-based. Digital media zeros and ones, like all digital media, digital, you know, anything is code-based. It's no accident to me that we've begun to think of ourselves as code-based at the same time that we've created digital media, DNA. The fact that the human species has begun to think of ourselves and, and living organisms as code-based, and the fact that we created code-based media simultaneously in the case of photography, means that we're going from the phenotype, the appearance, to the genotype. Analog photography is about the phenotype, and digital imaging is about the genotype. There's a, a, a kind of a comparison I use when the automobile was first invented. We called it the horseless carriage because we didn't know what to call it. We just knew it was a carriage without a horse, a car. And we still have horsepower in our automobiles you know, 263 horsepower and so on, even though it has nothing at all to do with horses. There's often something that one does in going from one medium to another, partially to disguise it. Why, you know, when, when uh, Steve Jobs died, I was thinking, it's interesting that there's such an outpouring of grief. You know, he's the guy who invented the apple. Why did he pick the apple to invent as, as a name? You know, if he invented like the 37X matrix, would there be the same outpouring? You know, simultaneously, I was thinking if uh, Bill Gates, when he passes away, there probably will not be such an outpouring. But in fact, Bill Gates has done as much as any human being on the earth to, to, to make it a better place with, with vaccines. Steve Jobs didn't do any of those things, but he invented these apples and, and that sort of thing. So part of it is sort of the branding and, and, and the labeling. But the, the argument I would make is that digital imaging and analog photography have very little to do with each other. They look like each other, just like a horseless carriage. But in fact, as time goes on, we're going to see that they evolve in very different ways. And another way that I think they're going to evolve is really going from a, 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 a... Quantum physics is based on discrete elements. It's, it's not continuous the way Newtonian physics is. And analog is, is continuous, 
digital is discrete. In the digital world, you can go up a hill. In, in the analog world, you start at the bottom, you go to the top, a vinyl record, you start at the beginning, you play it through. But in the digital world, it's steps. You could go to step seven, step two, step 11. It, it's, 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 a, it's not linear, it's not continuous. Different things happen because it's divided into segments. You know, and going with the, the old, you know, Marshall McLuhan, the, the medium is a message idea. To me, it's, it's, it's difficult to see how this is not going to impact enormously on monotheistic religions, on the idea that the earth was created day one, day two, day three, day four. Anybody who's digitally literate, it doesn't go one, two, three, four. Things get mixed up, things change. And so the argument to me is, which I'll, I'll, I'll return to later on, is that the introduction of code and the introduction of the quantum are two highly significant and profound changes that are gonna change us and change the way we're thinking. We think, for example, I think that Occupy Wall Street is much more a, a kind of a, you know, Web 1.0 is the top-down web, 2.0 is the social media. Occupy Wall Street is certainly 2.0, it's a social media. There's not a hierarchy of demands, there's not a cause and effect, there's not the Newtonian idea. It's a kind of a quantum 2.0 kind of a revolution. So that the media affect us, we do things differently because of them, has always been the case, Gutenberg, uh, you know, and nation states because of, of the movable type and, and so on and so forth. So I'll return to that, but I just wanted to introduce it. So some of the things that we decided to do, we started Pixel Press in 99, and the idea with Pixel Press was we didn't have to go through any more the gatekeepers. The idea was with digital media, we have the means of production and we have the means of distribution. We didn't have to go to CNN, we didn't have to go to Fox, we didn't have to go to any CBC, we didn't have to go to anybody. We could do it ourselves. So we approached mostly NGOs, humanitarian organizations, and we said instead of hoping that, you know, you, you put out a press release and somebody picks it up, why don't you just build your own websites? Why don't you get out your own message, your own way? And instead of building websites for them, we collaborated with them to try to figure out how to use the media differently. The point being that if you have a revolution in media, you can't just keep doing the same things as before. You can't just repurpose a newspaper and put the same stuff on the screen. You can't just do linear storytelling when it's a nonlinear medium. You have to shift it around, and, you, and it also gives you the possibility then to reach people in different ways. So one of the projects we worked on uh, which is online, rwandaproject.org, uh, I think it is, was kids in uh, Gisenyi, Rwanda. Uh, there's a guy, David Jaranek, who did a photo workshop with them. And th these were the kids. This is Jacqueline. Uh, you, know, what, you, you roll over with the mouse over any of the people's faces, and then their face pops up. And the idea was to ask them to say, these are like eight-year-old kids whose parents were killed in the genocide of 94. And, and the idea was to ask them, what do they see? What do they like? What do they love? What do they hate? What do they care about? Instead of looking from the outside in, almost all professional photographers who photograph in orphanages in Africa, refugee camps, show victimized people, people to be sorry for. There's a, a guy, Mel Rosenthal, in New York who always talks about downward mobility. 
It's, it's that the uh, middle-class photographer goes to lower-class people and is downwardly mobile and is empathetic and sympathetic and so on and so forth, but the, the poorer people always seem victimized. So one of the things you could do on the web is reverse these things. You don't have to get the work published in an in, in official magazine. You could just put it online. So for example, Jacqueline, who you just saw her face on the left, this was her image with her first roll of film with a disposable camera at the age of eight. It was submitted by the orphanage to Camera Arts Magazine in the US uh, for a portraiture contest. And Camera Arts Magazine wrote back to the orphanage and said, we need Jacqueline's second name. She won first prize. And they said, she doesn't have a second name because we don't know who her parents were. They died in the genocide. And the orphanage also said, Ben, you made an enormous mistake. She's only eight years old, and you had her first prize in the adult portraiture contest. And a Camaros magazine wrote back and said, she's still better than all the adults. She's still going to get first prize in the adult portraiture contest. So we did a website, and each of these images, a print would be made for $100. It cost $200 a year to go to high school in Rwanda. So for sale of two prints, a kid could go to high school for a year. There are 135 kids in the orphanage, about 16 or so in, in the workshop. Between the sale of these prints, concerts, and, and other fundraising, all kids in the orphanage got to go to high school for free. So the idea is you can not only represent yourself. This is uh, by Musa, another uh, uh, young uh, participant in the workshop. You can not only represent yourself, but your images can be used to pay for your future, yourself. So these are done, were done with disposable cameras. Later on, uh, David Taranik died, the guy who started it, and other people went and, and, and did some workshops, and they began to show them like the great books of photographs, you know, the history of this. And, the, and this kid started naturally to imitate the great photographs, and to me, that's, that's often a mistake when you work with, with people to show them what a photograph should be like. It's much more interesting to just ask them, what do you see? What's there? And certainly when you look at like a, a photograph like this, it's not victimized. So when the UN was uh, commemorating the 10th anniversary of the genocide in 2004, on the first floor in New York of UN headquarters, they ran these kids' pictures, like 40 of the pictures. The undersecretary general was there. We all held hands in this big circle, and, and people started sobbing. Because these were the kids, these were the future. This was their way of seeing. They survived the genocide. They had to live with it. But there was hope and optimism. It wasn't just pathetic. This is a similar project with the Daylight Foundation was done in, in, in Iraq. This was a year after the US invasion. And I think it was 10 cameras, disposable cameras, were given to like taxi driver, dentist, student, and so on and so forth. And we uh, ran this online as well. This was, you know, Tamim works with Ali, the owner of the barbie shop. Ali's 19 years old and friends with Mustafa, who works in the cigarette factory. We ran it in English and Arabic. Um, this is my friend Rua, who studies at the school in Baghdad. Um, about the dentist, his name is Ahmed. Uh, and so on. And what was really interesting to me was all the pictures we saw of Iraq at that time were bombings and bombings and explosions and yellow flames and orange flames and red flames. And they looked like crazy people, like unlike us people. I remember a Stern magazine photographer, the German magazine, did a 16 spread uh, project on the New York City subway. 
And every double-page picture was beautiful color, flash, metallic, with people dead, murders. And I remember I took the subway every day, and I never saw a murder. I never even heard of a murder, but that's all he saw was the murder. And I understood that to people in Germany, we looked crazy, irrational. These New Yorkers, they kill each other. They're stupid people. They're idiots. So we ran this to, to say we did a little show at New York University in the lobby, and believe it or not, CNN came, Aaron Brown, and ran, I think, five, six, seven minutes of our pictures. The project, I think, cost $200. It was 10 disposable cameras, maybe $100, but something like that. But they never thought of it because they only had their professionals. The professionals often didn't speak Arabic. It was too scary. It was too dangerous for them to go. But just giving the cameras to the people, there's a different point of view. We simultaneously did it when the Republican National Convention was happening in New York at that time at Madison Square Garden, just to say that maybe next time you go bomb these people, just remember they're dentists there or whatever. And this is a project we did with Sebastião Salgado, the Brazilian photographer with UNICEF. This was really one of the big projects we did. And we said to UNICEF, WHO, you don't need to do the press release. You, you, you could do a website. And so Salgado went to five countries. It was for the end of polio. As, as you know, smallpox is the only disease among humans that's been globally eradicated by people. And the attempt was to make uh, this the second one. Rotary International, uh, CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, WHO and UNICEF were involved. It was hundreds of millions of dollars. At that point, I think it was down to five countries where polio was endemic still. And the idea of these images was in part to, to, to make posters so that families would bring their kids in for vaccination. This is in, in the Sudan, in, in Pakistan, in India, in, 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 the, in the countries where it was still endemic, in the in DRC, the Congo. Um, and also to actually for the morale, like in India, 500,000 people would go out to vaccinate kids for free, volunteer, and just to raise the morale of people doing it by showing that somebody cares about them and somebody will make their image. We did a book. The traveling show went to every continent except Latin America and, uh, and, and the website in, in, in three languages. This, this was the book, The End of Polio. And the interesting thing was it came very, very close to eradicating polio globally. But the problem was after September 11th attacks in New York, and Washington, that there were certain regions in, in Nigeria, in, in, in Pakistan, of, of Muslim populations who, in, in some cases, had never ever seen a doctor or nurse in their lives before. And suddenly, these people are coming to immunize their kids. And they, they could be Hindu or Christian outsiders. And they felt they were coming to sterilize their kids. It had happened before. So they refused. And it took several years to, to, you know, to bring the religious authorities to Indonesia, which is a Muslim country where the uh, vaccine was being made, so they can believe it, and, and they restarted the vaccine program, but by then it had started spreading in more countries. By the way, we did er eradicate globally another disease this year, rinderpest of animals, uh, which, you know, sometimes in newspapers you, you miss the good news. So this is another one, the Millennium Development Goals. Um, at the UN, as you know, in 2000, it was decided that there are eight um, uh, qualities of life that a young person universally should expect, education, health care, jobs, and, and so on and so forth. 
So again, we had a photographer writer travel to eight regions of the world, but they also did a two-hour workshop in each place um, with, in terms of writing and, and photography, and then they gave the cameras to the, the kids, and they asked them to photograph what they like and what they don't like. That, that was the whole mandate. So this was a refugee camp in Uganda. Remember, I, I was saying that often people in refugee camps look so victimized. But when you live in a camp, why do you want to show yourself as victimized? So this, the, the caption is, I like my brothers. That's the caption. And in fact, this refugee camp in Uganda, I, I asked the UN, they said it had basketball courts, health care, education, and was often better than some of the war-torn conflict areas that they had come from. So, you know, again, these are from the kids in, in, in different places. This is, I like my neighbor. This is Morocco. Uh, I think the caption of this is, sometimes my brother is a little too protective. <laughs> Jamaica. One of the things we found in looking at these images is often there were no parents. There were grandparents, but no parents because of AIDS, because of other reasons. There often were not parents in family photos. India. So this is what we were doing in, 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 in Pixel Press. You know, we started it with, I started with one student. Uh, we ran it for about seven years. Um, and we put up a thing, a bar on the front of it. If anybody wants to donate, you know, please do. For about a year and a half, we got one donation from a former student who had his uncle and aunt give the Christmas gift of $25 to us. So we, we've, we've sort of suspended for the past few years trying to, to regroup and figure out what to do. You know, in part, we just did a 10-day project at, at the Aperture Gallery in New York, uh, What Matters Now, and we were asking the question is, uh, where is the front page of today? Do we need a front page? You know, so many, you know, in the U.S., uh, you know, we, we, all our countries have their own problems, but in the U.S., what amazed me while we were doing it, I found out that 400 Americans have the same wealth as the bottom 50% of the country. You know, 400 people have the same amount of wealth as half the Americans. Um, the top 20% of Americans have the same wealth as 84% of the country. Uh, white families have 20% of the income of black families, uh, which since the statistic has been kept, is the most disparity it's, it's ever been. And in terms of the CIA's fact book, the scale of egalitarianism, the US is way at the bottom. It's like 35th from the bottom. I think Iran, Russia, and Yemen, as I remember, are more egalitarian countries than the US, at the, according to the CIA, which you can't always believe. But, <laughs> but the CIA also pointed out that this lack of egalitarianism often leads to enormous financial instability and revolution. And the day that we ended the, 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 the 10 days of trying to come up with what the front page of the future could be or should be or might be because it shocked me that I didn't know these things. It shocked me that I live in the US and I didn't know how we got from Reagan's trickle-down economics to 400 people controlling half the wealth. Where's the front page? You know, what, what's going on? We, we in fact had Two guests, Simon Norfolk was talking to us about Afghanistan, uh, where he spent 10 years photographing, um, 
and I learned more in an hour and a half from listening to him than, than from 10 years of reading about Afghanistan. We also had a, a Canadian photographer talking about the tar sands, and I learned more in 45 minutes talking with him than any front page I, I'd seen at that point. And so the question became, what do we put on our front page? You know, do we, who's going to look at it? Does anybody care? The average age of the reader of the print edition of the New York Times about three years ago was 55. So it, it, it's, it's obvious that as print media begins to vanish, what replaces it, if anything? So just a few more things. Um, I got this CD when I was at Pixel Press uh, from a Dutch photographer, Robert Knoth, who I didn't know. It was just images, and Antoinette de Jong did the reporting. And it was on 20 years since the Chernobyl radiation. But what it was about was the fact that there was a lot of above-ground testing, a lot of accidents in, in, in that area of the world, not just Chernobyl at all. And they had spent many years documenting it. So, for example, we ran it on Pixel Press as about 16 or 18 screens. So the caption for, for the one on the right was a 16-year-old, quote, I don't like to go to school because the boys call me bad names. The girls avoid me and don't want to go out with me. I hope I will not have children who look like me. He has hydrocephalus. And an awful lot of kids in that area of the world, because of the radiation poisoning, have hydrocephalus. So he doesn't want to have kids who will look like him. You know, this was uh, t uh, sisters, and, and they both have thyroid cancers and all kinds of other health problems, you know, at 17 and 19. And this is the one that, what, what I really understood then, I was teaching at Temple University in Philadelphia at the time, and I, I, w I showed this work to my class, and one of the students in, in, who sat in the back of the class put this image on Boing Boing, which was one of the big blogs, uh, which brought, I think it was something like 17,000 readers because of it. It turns out that these are twin brothers. Uh, they're 16. Uh, Michael has hydrocephalus, who's five minutes older than Vladimir, who's deaf. And it brought so many people to the website and so many conversations about is this healthy or not healthy, working at a nuclear plant, having nuclear energy among young people not just the older people, but young people. I work in a nuclear plant, they tell me it's safe, the other guy says, look at these pictures, is it really safe? Let's talk about it. We had 500,000 uh, viewers in a week look at a million and a half screens. It's painful stuff. People in China, I got all the statistics, average 17 screens each. Belarus, obviously, was a big, uh, looking at it, the US Army, Canada, there were, there were places that spent a lot of time looking at this, and we became one of the 2,500 most read websites in the world. This is 2005-06, that area, uh, bigger than places like Vanity Fair. There is a desire to know what's going on in the world. We're just doing an incredibly bad job of using the digital to get it out for people. And then the same essay, this is, this is close to the end of it, the caption reads, uh, they would check the milk as they distributed it. I think this is Ukraine. And if there was any dirt or flies in it, they would be sure to get it out. But if the milk tested radioactive, what they would do is they would pour fresh milk into it until it evened out enough to be under the radiation limit. That's, and that's what they'd give to people to drink. But it had no flies. 
We did a project on juvenile justice. We did, this was after the Israeli uh, invasion in Janine, we did just a project on photographing people's living rooms. And the interesting thing was on Google, when you looked up living room to buy a sofa, you would end up on this project. This is uh, Zana Briskies that won the Academy Award. First we did this, uh, you know, the pictures again by kids in the red light district. Uh, this is Tim Hetherington, who unfortunately was, was killed in, in April in Misrata in Libya. Uh, his multimedia piece, all these are online, you can see at pixelpress.org, but it was his first multimedia piece uh, on an emergency ward in Wales for, for alcoholic-induced violence. When he was killed in Misrata in Libya, he was probably the first multimedia journalist in history to be killed. He had a giant like wedding kind of camera, those big box cameras with a flash and a video camera. And he was, he was there knowing that he had, he, he called himself a visual journalist. He didn't think photojournalist was sufficient. He would do anything he could to tell the story that needed to be told. And to me, he was the most talented person of his generation. He died at 40. And this one we, we ran too. Clarence Williams was on the roof of, uh, he had gone to New Orleans for his cousin's wedding, but his cousin had kind of left town not telling Clarence that there was going to be this big hurricane coming. And Clarence had all his cameras. He had won a Pulitzer Prize for the Los Angeles Times, uh, but he didn't have film. So he got stuck on top of a roof with his uncle, and I don't remember the amount of time, it was like a day and a half, two days, two and a half days, something like that. The, these boats would go by with National Guard, this is obviously Hurricane Katrina, and, and the helicopters would go by and nobody would pick them up. And then Clarence, who's African American, was, was wondering, is, is there a kind of a, a bias against them? And so one of them said to the other, do you have a gun, a rifle? And the other said, why? And they said, well, let's shoot the helicopters. That way they'll come down and arrest us and get us off the roof. <laughs> so he came down afterwards and he just did pinhole photographs of New Orleans and what happened to it. So we, we ran that with this story. We often ran projects that, that the conventional media wasn't running. So let me just show you a few other things. I hope I'm not talking too fast, am I? I just got off an airplane, and you know, when you get off airplanes, you're used to going very quickly. So this was Gloucester, Massachusetts, New Zanian, and Gloucester, Massachusetts, you know, for tourists, this is what they see. So what I'm trying to get at now is digital media is very, very, very different. It's a revolution. It's different than analog media. So to just simulate with the digital what we do with the analog is fine, it's very efficient, it's nice, you don't waste a lot of film because you're not using film, but it's also incredibly short-sighted because the digital opens up new ideas. So we've experimented with different ideas you know, for a long time, and I'll show you a few of the experiments, and I think all of them are incredibly primitive, but they're the beginning of some ideas. So one thing is, the digital allows for multiple perspectives. Like in a magazine, there's not enough space. You see the one image that defines it. So this is Gloucester, but if you roll over the image with the mouse, the cursor, what you see underneath is the people who live in Gloucester. The working class, the people who live there, not the tourist view. If you roll over the mouse again, you see the fishermen. And if you roll over again, you see the church life and so on. 
The idea being that there is never just one definitive truth. There's multiple truths all the time. So when the US was invading Haiti, if you use the mouse on top of that first image and saw the side image, you're telling the reader more about what's actually going on. It's multiple, you know, it's like Rashomon, you know, the multiple perspectives on the murder kind of a thing. So it's so easy to do this. It's just, uh, you know, you just put one image over the other and, and, and go over it. And every time I give these speeches at like big journalism conferences and thing, everybody says, great idea, great idea, great idea, and nobody ever does it. And the question is, what secret are we keeping? What fear do we have of giving up our authority? So this is one thing we did uh, after September 11th. My office at Pixel Press at that time was on 26th Street in Manhattan. The World Trade Center had been devastated. We, we had to close the office for a few days. It was, it was horrible, the, the smell in the air, and it just was a horrible time. And, but we wanted to you know, revive, so we, we, we asked people around the world to, to send in videos and images and multimedia pieces and poems about what they felt about what happened, what's the future of the world, where are we going. Somebody in Sweden just photographed an empty bench and sent it in. People did different things, but our homepage the U.S. was thinking of bombing Afghanistan, and I found this image by Salgado. It, to me, it was the identical image of what just happened to us a few days before. So we put it up and said, they've already been bombed in Afghanistan. Why are we going to go bomb them again? They're bombed already. Look at it. You know, in the double. First of all, people don't like this because we're not the exceptional. You know, other people have problems, too. We're not supposed to do that. But we did it, and the interesting thing then was so many like, conventional mass media publications linked to us and sent their readers, but they could not do this because it's too political in their objective. I, I, I hope you caught the uh, quotation marks. So we did this, you know, I think we had 200,000 or whatever it was, readers come in and look, but it, it seemed really important to say that before, you know, and that's 10 years later, a trillion dollars later in Afghanistan, and what have we done? Sorry to be, I'm supposed to be talking about photography and stuff, but. And then a year later we did, uh, you know, the U.S. was also attacked in, in September 11th in the Pentagon. And Chile, September 11th is, is their day in Chile as well when Allende was deposed, the socialist government was deposed. Again, to me, the images were almost identical. And again, I thought it was important to say that we're not the only ones suffering. Other people suffer too. And whatever role or role the U.S. did or didn't have in Chile, or whatever it was, for the Chilean people, September 11th is a date of mourning, as it is for us. So previously in 96, and, and it's hard to show you in PowerPoint, it's, you know, all these things, particularly the interactive ones, are hard to show PowerPoint. But I went to the New York Times and I said, you know, the web is new. Let's do something new. You know, this is 96, the web started, you know, just a year or two before. And I gave them a bunch of ideas. We agreed on Bosnia. Bosnia had just signed a, a uh, peace treaty after four years of shelling and bombardment in 90, uh, you know, 91, 95, the Dayton Peace Accords. And I said, why don't we then use the web to do storytelling differently before? And I want to do a project on peace, not on war. If you do the history of photography of war, you have like 100 volumes. If you do the history of photography of peace, it's a very slim volume. 
To me, the interesting thing about photography is proactive. If you could use photography to prevent war, it's much better than waiting for the war and making great pictures. If you could present, prevent calamity proactively, it's much better than waiting for the calamity and making great pictures. I'd rather win an award for the most dull pictures in the world that prevent a calamity than for the most spectacular of the calamity. So this was about peace. So you'd have to click either on the left or the right, and you didn't know which way you were going. The, you know, the Times put into the suburbs to Sarajevo, but I was hoping just to do it, you just click. But it was supposed to be the metaphor was the journalist. The journalist arrives at the airport, he or she doesn't know where they're going. They go one way or the other. Why do we tell the reader a bedtime story, you know, the, you know once upon a time, and this happened and this happened with a beginning, middle, and end? This is a nonlinear medium, the web. Life is nonlinear. We don't know what's going to happen. Before you walked in this room, you weren't sure what would how your life would change now, if it does at all, whatever happens. It's nonlinear all the time. There's multiple options, parallel universes, all these things that can happen. So we made it this way where the reader would have to engage by choosing which way he or she wanted to go. And as you entered it, this would be the Sarajevo one, as you entered it, you'd go with the photographer writing and the images going into Sarajevo. Gilles Perez is the photographer, French photographer living in New York who'd worked quite a long time in Bosnia. And this is really the first time he had to write because in a nonlinear project like this, it was important that people could get lost and, and we needed more than just the images. So, you know, this was what, what would happen here. There's, there's actually a 360 degree uh, of this, but what people, the Serbs were doing was unburying their dead. They were unburying the dead because they heard that the uh, their enemy was coming on the radio and they would desecrate the cemetery so they were they got very drunk some of them and they unburied the dead to take the dead with them you know this was you know I, I was editing his work in New York while he was in Bosnia it was a six-week assignment probably you know one of the longest uh, made for the web and so of course you always take the dead body it turned out this wasn't a dead body this was an actor playing a dead body four days after the ceasefire. They were already shooting a feature film in Sarajevo, and that was an actor playing a dead body. Um, and you could always, from wherever you go, you could pick any screen you want to go to, go inside, get lost, figure out things, do it, and so on. Simultaneously, he ran a photo essay in the New York Times Sunday magazine. I think it was eight pages. It, it, it took about 15, 20 minutes to go through. This project, I was told, takes four hours to go through. And the, the interesting thing was, you know, as you go through, you sort of, what happened in, in Bosnia was, you know, your neighbor might be Serb and you're Muslim or vice versa or a Croat, your best friends, but suddenly the civil war happens, they're the enemy. You know, horrible things happen to neighbors by neighbors. And everything you click and everywhere you go, you're kind of lost in Bosnia as well. And what I was trying to do was, make people feel some of what it felt like to be lost in a society that turned into chaos, as opposed to a bedtime story. Bedtime stories are good for six-year-olds, but they're not necessarily good to engage people in terms of what's going on in the world. You know, I'd like to do the same thing in Iraq, in Afghanistan, you know, tar sands, anything, where you, where you have to make choices and you go and, and no two people read the same uh, narrative necessarily because that means that the reader 
becomes the collaborator, you know, the old literary deconstruction where the, the reader becomes the collaborator with the author. In fact, in hypertext and hypermedia, hyperphotography, it becomes practical. So there's all kinds of techniques, technologies right now out that also kind of, you know, make to me photography more and more like oil painting. Yeah, I like oil painting, but it, 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 it's something very different. It's, this is um, coming out of Carnegie Mellon, and you take the original picture on the upper left. You don't like the buildings in the way. It, it does a search of the web. It finds similar images of the same scene, and, and then it replaces it with the one you choose. So if somebody's running in front of your camera, in front of the Eiffel Tower or something, just check all the other images. The software does it for you. And don't worry about the person running in front of it. There is no decisive moment um, at that point. The photosynth, the idea that you know, the, the, you know, Google mapping, all these things going on, the multiple, multiple, multiple perspectives. So you could actually fly into a virtual world uh, from all the cameras that ever took a picture of the same place. It, 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 it charts where the camera was, what, where the person was standing, and you can see all that stuff, and then it becomes a three-dimensional three model of, of whatever it is. So you know, now you really can kind of take a virtual trip of many of the tourist sites, which to me is fantastic because it means you don't have to go to the tourist sites. You can go to the back streets where they haven't so far done that. You know, it's an incentive not to do this because it's been so overly mapped. You know, the, you know, Baudrillard's idea that, you know, the, the map, or it's Borges' idea that the map matches the territory, and then you get to the point you don't need the territory, you just have the map, and then you get to the point where the map itself is so skewed that it has nothing to do with the territory, but the map itself becomes the, your new universe. And this one I like a lot. This is from uh, Chinese, mostly Chinese researchers, I think, one Israeli, I'm, I don't remember exactly, but you can draw and label what you want, it'll search the web and it'll make the picture for you. So you don't even have to worry about the camera anymore. Remember I was telling you about the uh, Swedish airplane crash, you don't need a camera. So you could just sort of, you know, do it, you know, do what you want to do. And this is the sixth sense, you know, if, if we had another few hours, but I, if you look to the TED Talks, I highly recommend this, MIT Media Lab, it's the idea that you wear something around your neck, which is kind of like a cell phone today. Uh, this was two or, two or three years ago. It's still under development. But basically, it allows you just with your fingers, it takes the picture for you. You just put your fingers like that. It becomes like a dance. You use your body movement to take the pictures. If you want to know what time it is, you, you pull out your wrist, and it projects a clock on your wrist and, and, and that sort of thing. And you know, it, it becomes what they call the sixth sense. You know, to, to go back to the time issue, I, I start the after photography book, you know, with the, with the analog clocks we've had, the, the circle clocks with the hands that go around, it's a metaphor of the sun rising and setting. The, the, the digital clocks, the integers, there's nothing that's rising and setting, there's no cycle, it's all abstract. Those are two completely different universes, and that's, that's kind of another way to think of what I'm trying to get at. So one of the things I thought, for example, with global warming, climate change, and so on, was if you photograph the future, this is Minnesota Grain Belt, 2065, according to scientists. You know, I did this about five years ago. But, but the hope was, if you photograph the future, remember Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan and that silly thing? But if you photograph this future and you say, this is what's going to happen unless we do something about it, you hope you make pictures of the future that never happened. 
you know, you, 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 you do the you know, traffic jams that would happen if you build these buildings. You put them in, you know, just the way architects do before they build buildings. So it becomes a proactive photography, a photography of the future based upon research, and you show all the research. But you see what would happen if we don't do anything about it with the hope that it never happens, so you never have to photograph it. That kind of an idea. So we, we come from a time, going back to the front page, where we shared front pages. We shared similar ideas. Less and less does that happen. We are all our own front page. Many people think that's fantastic, you know, because we are all empowered to have our own front page. My dentist appointment's at 4 o'clock, my date is at 7 o'clock, and Obama's speaking at 9 o'clock, my front page. We could do anything we want to do with it. But we don't have common things to talk about. I, I don't have conversations on subways anymore. I don't know what the person's reading. I can't see the screen. They may not be reading. They may have these things in their ears. I don't really count anymore. So what do we do about that? You know, what kind of algorithms do we do or what kind of, you know, my idea in the front page conference at Aperture was we have 60 wizards around the world like Harry Potter and they tell us because of their specialties what we should look at every week. So at least we have something to talk about in common and we're not all over the place all the time. So that's one idea. This is the family photograph of, of, of the contemporary family photograph of the digital age. Pedro Mayer, the Mexican photographer on the left. Pedro Mayer, the Mexican photographer to be on the right. In other words, he's the son and he's the father and that's his father and that's his son. You got it? On the left, Pedro Mayer and his son. On the right, Pedro Mayer and his dad. Yes? So, you know, there used to be a problem like that you know, your, your cousin couldn't arrive at your wedding, they could be at your wedding now. It's okay, the photograph is really not anymore about something having happened. The photograph is about what we want to have happened or we don't want to have happened. It's malleable, it's exciting, but we may not want to call it a photograph. We may want to call it something else, like a digital image. And in conclusion, I'm not quite done, but just a few more. What's really, really, really interesting to me, going back to the code idea, is it's now catching on. Brian Eno, for example, had the idea 20, 20, 20 years ago or so that when he dies, the Brian Eno algorithm will continue to make music. And if you want, you could buy his algorithm and have it cohabit with the Mozart algorithm, and they're going to have offspring that are going to make Eno Mozart music. And you could then take tracks of it, and you'll have the only music in the world made by these various seeds, code, DNA, artistic DNA, yes? And, and so on. So instead of getting the flower, you get the seed. So you start to think of the making of art as seed-based, as DNA-based, as code-based, not to replicate a previous medium, not to do digital music that sounds just like a vinyl record, that's e too easy. But to do what digital can do differently, which is to have the seeds, which then will flower with new kinds of ideas. People call it artificial life. You know, a computer virus is artificial life. So Bjork just came out with this app two weeks ago. The New York Times on the front page did a story on it. Uh, there was a passing reference to the Thomas Edison in the photograph, and now we have phonograph, and now we have Bjork. And what she decided to do was, because of her DNA and mapping her DNA and her ancestors' DNA, she was so entranced by the code-basedness of Bjork and her family that she used the code to make music. 
her DNA to make music. You know, and you could put your DNA, you know, like a player piano or something takes DNA and it comes out with different. But the interesting thing too is with all this is anything as code could output in any medium you want. So that this guy, Kojimo, who's from Japan, takes the daily news photograph and he turns it into music every day. He goes pixel by pixel and he's worked out the harmonics and it sounds, with all due respect, I know this is being recorded, it's not my favorite music, but I think it's extraordinarily interesting what he's trying to do is that the image itself could output his music. Ansel Adams, the great photographer, started as a classical pianist. The zone system, black to white, which many of you know, the scale, is the piano scale. Musical tones and image tones have a lot in common. So why don't you, why don't we start thinking about at a code level, music could come in and come out as image, vice versa, text, smell, whatever we want it to be. At a code level, we could output it as anything we want. That's not repurposing analog, that's doing something you could do with digital. And I'm gonna end with this uh, Toronto native, uh, David Rokeby. This was one of the projects that really made me understand this. What this is, is multiple cameras looking at David, recording David Rokeby as he moves, but outputting it differently. Oops. What happened to my, oh, there it is. So it's called the Very Nervous System. This is from the 1980s. So the, the, the image inputs, outputs, they did it. My students, the graduate students at NYU, uh, used the Very Nervous System with a dancer. Uh, a professional dancer and she hated it because she's used to dancing to the music, not making the music by dancing. You know, the cameras watched her and come out as music. But they pointed out the, the window of the fourth floor and like the taxi drivers and the bicyclists made incredible music. You know, it's kind of a John Cage idea, you know, with, with the camera and, and... So the idea that you can use the camera, like you could photograph a demonstration and, and it comes out as music to me is really wonderful, as opposed to always using the camera for image. In a digital world, there's no reason it has to always be used for image at all. So I end with the uh, image from Loretta Lux, which for some reason to me announces something different, a kind of analog digital future. And, you know, and it's really this sense that this is the most fascinating, amazing time in history in terms of media. There's so much to do and so little's been done for the most part, we've simulated older media, and we've done very, very little to create new media. So thank you very much. So we take questions, thoughts, comments? And we have microphones here, so if you have a question, if you could put your hand. Should we turn lights up? So yes, he's, Dave will do that. Yeah. 
Hi. So um, you began your talk by describing the kind of fundamental shift or rupture that occurs in your view between uh, photography as an analog media to the digital um, age, which is more about a kind of plasticity of the image and manipulability. And I'm wondering if, in order to make that claim, you don't have to first revisit all of the types of manipulation that kind of already existed with analog photography, and so that it's not necessarily a kind of definitive paradigm shift or rupture, but rather um, a change of quality, of acceleration, of rapidity, of dissemination, etc. Because in the next part of your talk, uh, from the kind of medium claim that you made, you then went into the Pixel Project and all the different uh, ways photography can be used for humanitarian effort, etc. And I'm not sure I saw the connection between the claim about a radically different form of media uh, to the different uses and purposes that it could be put on the web or on the internet, which seems to me to have more to do with um, accessibility, dissemination, etc. When, when I'm working on humanitarian projects, I never am trying to revolutionize media. I'm more interested that the people depicted come out ahead. And to do, to make music out of a photograph made by a kid in an orphanage serves no purpose. The, the purpose was to raise money so they can go to high school and to let them show themselves differently. And an eight-year-old kid, you know, using an older medium is, is, is great. There's no problem at all. What, I, what I'm trying to get at is there are different ways to produce and distribute and they could be done for humanitarian reasons. And whatever way you want to do it, that's fine. That's like part two of the talk. Part three of the talk was saying, we have a radically new medium that we could do amazing things with, but that doesn't happen overnight. You know, you don't do it from one day to the next and figure it out, but you do have to plant the seeds and the ideas and push it. It's true, and it's, it's that in the 19th century, from the very beginning of photography, people have manipulated and faked images and done things like that. The differences in scale is enormous at this point. Um, I know from being a picture editor at the New York Times Magazine and elsewhere, in three and a half years being there, which I think was something like 180 issues, I can only think of three tiny retouches that were done on covers. For example, and, and they were, you know, like uh, two centimeters. They cost about $350, $400, which in those days was probably about $1,200 now. And they took three days to do, and you never knew if it would be any good or not for your cover, because lots of times the retouching would be so obvious you wouldn't want to do it. But once you put it on a screen and you could change pixel by pixel and anybody can do it, it, it happens much, much, much more frequently. So there's a skepticism about the image that there wasn't before. Yes, you can go back and see the retouching done on news photographs. You could see all kinds of things. And it, as I said in the first sentence of this was that no photographs are objective ever. It's always subjective, it's always interpretive, and people have done it in different ways. But the level of change you know, when, when uh, Kennedy was shot in 63, the Zapruder film, nobody would have changed it that week, like the O.J. Simpson was changed. It was changed years later in, in the movie, the fictional movie. 
but nobody would, would do it that week because it was a historical document. You don't touch historical documents. And this was done three days after Simpson was arrested. And that's Time Magazine saying we're taking a common mugshot and raising it to the level of art with no sacrifice to truth. That's a very different Time Magazine than, you know, I worked at Time Magazine. It wasn't like that before that. So you're right, there's always in all media been manipulation. But the scale of this is enormous, and the fact that it's made pixel by pixel to change, it's so easy to change. How many photo students are expert color print retouchers? Very, very few. But how many are expert Photoshop retouchers? Many, many, many. It's a, it's a different thing. And I, I would be the first to agree that there's always been issues in photography, like all media. I, I'm not trying to be a purist about it. The, what I'm speaking out of is, is Kushner, who was one of the founders of Médecins Sans Frontières, the Doctors Without Borders, said, without a photograph, we've never been able to prove a massacre. They never believe the eyewitness because the eyewitness is subjective. But the photograph is viewed as credible and the eyewitness isn't. So without a credible photograph, there will be no massacres because nobody will believe it. And that's fine for us if we're not massacred, but it's not fine for the people being massacred. And those are the kinds of issues that I've been trying to deal with you know, so it's okay, you know, for example, we came up with a symbol, it's, it's a circle inside a square that's a lens and a diagonal slash, and the diagonal slash would show it's not a lens, and that would be put under manipulated images, like a copyright symbol. And I, I did multiple conferences on that, nobody wanted to do it in the 90s. They, the picture editors said that we know better, we know what's fine and what's not fine. Obviously, they, didn't, they did not. But I think we need some sort of parameters so that the reader knows to what extent it's fact-based or not fact-based. Knowing that it's always subjective, it's always interpretive, and often one won't agree. I mean, if, if 30 people photograph this event tonight, we'll have different interpretations. So I take your point, but, but I think it is a difference, enormous difference of scale. <laughs> Any other questions, thoughts, comments? It can't be that clear. <laughs> Here I am. Well, just because no one else is saying anything, I hate silence. So um, I loved your talk. Thank you so much. Um, and I love that you ended with the idea that, uh, that for the most part, we've simulated old media but have done little to create new. And I'm, uh, I mean, I agree with you, first of all. Um, as you know, this, this week uh, marks the 100th anniversary of the birth of Marshall McLuhan, so it was great that you referred to McLuhan a couple of times. And, uh, you know, in his idea, and as you mentioned, of uh, the radical change of movable type and how movable type brought in this sense of linear thinking that he found so restrictive and that you refer to a lot in your talk about how the digital moves away from that, which I agree is really exciting and that we're starting to see more on the internet, but there's this, this tendency of uh, viewers and readers, I think, still to want this sort of um, traditional way of seeing things because change comes slowly and we have yet to see the beginnings of what's happening. And um, I was at a, a meeting recently with the National Magazine Awards Foundation, and we were just deciding, you know, like in 2011, that digital magazines should be given a part in the, mag in the magazine awards, which we actually had a debate about this in the room, uh, but I teach a, a, a group of students, mostly under 30, and when I told a couple of them about this, they were like, 
really, you're only just now thinking mm. of, of print media as, as, uh, as digital media as being on the same level. And, uh, and, you know, and someone in the room said, oh, I don't buy any of this crap about the death of print media because our newsstand sales are higher than they've ever been. But I don't know, I think maybe that's the tail end of the baby boomer, boomers who can afford magazines because it just seems to me mm. that, that print media, as again you said, uh, what did you say about print media? That, that we knew it was going to be replaced with something we just didn't know what yet. So I, I haven't really, I'm just commenting because you said if you yeah. don't have a question, you can comment. So. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it, McLuhan is incredibly important in, in, in thinking this through. It's, what, what, what he said, which, which I, I really, really agree with, is that unconsciously we're affected by media. They change us as people. So, you know, Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows, for example, about reading, you know, that younger people have more difficulty reading long, you know, prose novels or, or books or whatever it would be. So you could argue that's good, you could argue that's bad. But you could also ask the question, well, if there's a problem reading that, then what great new thing is coming out that's even better than that? You know, there, there's all these media shifts and, you know, McLuhan's idea of hybridization of media and so on and so forth. You know, this should be a fertile moment. Like, in my opinion, all universities, all high schools, even elementary schools should be teaching hypertext at this point. Hypertext fiction. How do you write a hypertext poem? How do you write something where you can go multiple directions in it and not just simulate older media? You know, it, it's, it's the older media themselves are wonderful. I mean, they're great. But we need new ideas. We, we've been given, like the cornucopia, we've been given, you know, these means of production. You know, I have a one kilo computer that has everything I do on it. And I could produce and I publish off it and I distribute off it and I write off it and I think of we have enormous means of production, and we're doing so, so little with it. 20, 30 years, ago when I, 30 years ago when I started, photographers would argue and be frustrated that the gatekeepers wouldn't publish them. You know, that they were too radical, too innovative, too amazing, too wonderful, they don't get published. And they were often right. But now we could do anything we want. But instead, you know, in my opinion, the design of magazines in the 1930s is so far superior to anything I've seen on the web in terms of design. We, we don't push it forward. We don't do it. We're, we're very much on back of our heels at this point. And, and you know, that's, you know, with apologies for just, you know, I, I know that this is like a rat-a-tat-tat of different ideas and I don't go deeply into, but, but it's really just trying to, 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 to provoke a discussion on what's good and what's bad and what should we be doing. I mean, my students, for example, I always have them do portraits Cube is, you know, multiple things, so you, you roll over and under it, there's another portrait, another portrait, and maybe one's clothed and the next is nude, and maybe one's the top and one's the bottom. So it's not just one thing. You know, just to get the, uh, the you know, the, the, thinking, the thinking going, and because we really need the thinking, you know, to come from all generations at this point. So I think I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, thank you so much. You're so much more eloquent than I am. <laughs> I, I just have the microphone. Um, I'm probably still very analog in much of my thinking and the way I approach the world. And your description of your experience on the subway with not being able to know what the person next to you is thinking or reading or considering 
Um, I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit further on that and how you see that we will communicate with each other if we're all following our own individual tracks um, without, I mean, I, I can understand sort of the power of one media if we all read the same newspaper all the time and there's somebody big out there speaking to us. Right. But how do we communicate now uh, into the new, the new way? Or can you just comment on it? I yeah, yeah, it, it's... It, it's about presence for me. It's, it's kind of like the slow food movement in Italy and so on. That you kind of have to force yourself to adapt habits that... Because why do they call digital media people users? You know, that you, we're users. Users are drug addicts. And I think there's a good reason, because this stuff is so seductive, it's so addictive, it, it just keeps you going. To me, the, 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 the cardinal rule I know in designing sites, if you want to be effective, is just make sure people's finger moves and that they'll like it. Because you feel there's kind of this sort of subliminal engagement in it. When I taught in a graduate school, the rule was that if they can't find the place to click in three seconds, it's a bad project. My rule was if you can find the place to click in 30 seconds, it's a bad project. You have to slow it down. You have to do it differently, and it really takes work. It's the same thing with, you know, fast food, slow food. It's 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 throughout the society, and again, the the McLuhan idea: the media affects us, and we affect the media, and then the media affects us again, and it works in collaboration. And it's the unconscious part of it that's deadly. It's not the content. You know, that's the old, the content, the the meat. It's sort of the meat that that we think it's really about, but it's. You know, it's, it's, that program was too violent or the video game was too violent. But the video game itself is changing us so dramatically. Whatever's on the video game, we're becoming different people. You know, Nicholas Carr's argument is that there's brain changes. They're doing fMRI work, that the brains have changed already. But you have to, you know, it, it, there's stuff we have to do. We have to resist. But the only way you can resist is by being conscious of it. That's the first step. You have to be conscious of it. And you have to say what's most important to me is X, Y, and Z and go after it and not just go for what's easy. That's my problem with the apple. Because the apple, for all its beauty and its wonder, has prevented so many other things from happening. You know, and, and we love it and we go that way and it's cheap and it's free and it's intellectual content we don't pay for and so on and so forth. It's, it's fantastic. But we, we, we've really trapped ourselves enormously. And, and we don't know it. We're happy in our prison. Um, I have a question. Thank you very much uh, for sure. your observations. And obviously, we appreciate your keeping an eye on this. Uh, you're paying a lot more attention to these developments than most of us can. My question, I think, has to do with uh, the role of narrative, that uh, analog may uh, facilitate uh, narrative and uh, digital may break down the narrative. And do you have any observations about uh, the potential death of narrative in a uh, digital universe where it's just bits and bytes and uh, right. networked uh, communication? The, the, the argument in digital, the, the positive argument, is that a long time ago people sat around a campfire and they asked, what happened today? And they said, yeah, that deer was amazing that we shot or hit or caught. Or The other guy said, it wasn't so amazing. It was, uh, two weeks ago, it was more amazing. And everybody kind of fabricated the story together. So there wasn't one author of a story. It wasn't sort of the monotheistic 
top-down, you know, 1.0 kind of an idea. It was a collaborative effort to make a story. And one of the arguments about hypertext and digital media and collaborative and interactive, interactive is not an ATM machine, you know, where you get the money. But if we can all collaborate in authoring, you know, that, that's, that's the whole idea of literary deconstruction, that the author writes it, but, but we provide the meaning as the reader. And if we could collaborate in a sensible way, not a gimmick, but a sensible way to come up with something, we can make new kinds of literature, new kinds of narrative. You know, there's a, a nice site. Uh, it's, I, I do this blog after photography.org, which I haven't written for a while, but, but I highlighted one of it. And you, you put in your address as a child, where you grew up, your house, and then there's this music um, that comes up and, and so on. And somehow the Google Maps, uh, the Street Views, finds your house, and your house becomes part of the narrative. So you collaborate, your house becomes there. And I've seen people cry watching their house become part of it, their childhood house. So my sense of, of the problem now, or one of the problems now, like Occupy Wall Street, is that the top-down stuff doesn't work for a lot of people. There's, you always have to have choice. So if you get 500 boxes of cereal to choose from in the grocery store, you may get terrible cereal, but you have a choice. But if you're only given two that are great, People don't like it. They want choice. There's a change, and that's what social media is about. And sometimes social media is fantastic and great and much better than top-down media. But we have to think of literatures that involve people in different ways at this point, as well as do the older literature. Nothing I've said tonight do I mean that oil painting or novels or photography, there's anything wrong with it. But what I'm saying is that digital media itself can do enormous things. The other problem, though, I'm trying to get at is that we wait for the manufacturers to tell us what to do. Like when I showed you the, some of the early projects, like Rokeby at the very end, he wrote his own software. Now if you buy off-the-shelf software, it tells you what to do. You know, Jimi Hendrix, you know, the guitar player, like he went off the scale and shrieked. You can't do that with software. The software keeps you in the limits. But if he couldn't shriek, he wouldn't have been Jimi Hendrix. Jackson Pollock broke all the rules of painting and was a great painter. And so, you know, you have to have the freedom and not be stuck in the software all the time as well. So I've, I've created my own narrative in answering your question about narrative. But, you know, it's, it's new narratives, I think, will have to evolve, you know, while we try to appreciate the, the older narratives as well. There's just one last thing. There's an amazing thing in Gary Steingart, uh, you know, who wrote Absurdistan and he's written a new novel, something like... Super Sad True Love Story. Super sad true love story, that's it. And there's one scene where this is 39-year-old, you know, Russian Jewish immigrant who has bookshelves, you know, Tolstoy, whatever, and his 24-year-old girlfriend, and she breaks down sobbing, and she, she's in love with him, but she pulls out a book or something, and she says, you know, I don't know how to read. She says, all I know how to do is scan for information. You know, and, and so how do you have a narrative if all you could do is scan for information? You, you have to then work with what's there as, you know, as well as older forms. I'm not against, you know, that, that's, it's a diversity. I, I was actually going to mention Steingart in my question. Okay. Um, yeah, just, I very much appreciated the an enormous amount of information and stuff you gave us. Um, I sense t two things going on. One is a kind of... Um, technological optimism that I've been hearing for the last 30 years. I remember people, it was going to be um, holography. 
okay. um, was going to change art making. Never did. Um, but I think also I sense you hint at a kind of dystopian effect uh, of the new media. And one thing I, I don't know, you keep using the word interactive. I have yet to see a single web piece that is in fact interactive. Hmm. You are within the maze set up by the producer. Right. You, don't, you cannot bring anything to it. It's just like a video game. It's not interactive. It's multiple choice. And, you know, multiple choice may not even be the best kind of exam. I mean, writing an essay is... A multiple choice is the same kind of thing. You're, which, are the, which is the right answer? You're not writing an essay. And that's... So I think there are huge problems in, 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 in this kind of optimism. Um, I, I don't know if I'd call it optimism. I, I, you just... See, when, when the automobile started, if we'd figured out at that time the ramifications of it, climate change and so on, we might have decided it should be only four cylinders or something. We, you know, maybe nobody would have listened to us, but we certainly could have tried, and we could have had uh, test models of electric cars earlier on. We could have tried, and maybe people would have picked it up or maybe not, but we would have done what we can do. Uh, I don't know if that's optimism, but that's at least a uh, pragmatic attempt. I know that media changes enormously. I know nonlinear media have already changed us enormously. And what I'm pushing for is that we try to be conscious of that and to, to use its potentials for something that's better for us individually, societally, as opposed to something worse. Rather than grow up attention deficit deprived and just say, forget Tolstoy, what, what are the other alternatives? So I, I spend a lot of time with hypertext fiction. I spend a lot of time, you know, in, in these, you know, in, in older attempts in experimental fiction and so on, because a lot of what I see in the older attempts, they didn't have a digital platform. And maybe if they did other things, you know, the exquisite corpse or something, it becomes, that is collaborative. It's nonlinear. And, and things can be done that are different. Uh, at, at this point. And what I'm showing is, is really, really just early attempts at, at that kind of thinking. Well, what, what happens, sorry, just want is, is that the corporations and so on cash in on it in these gimmicky ways and these you know, seductive ways, and we don't think outside of that. So I, I'm, I'm trying to say that you know, all of us in an art museum and university environments and so on and so forth have an obligation to think outside of it. I just, you know, when you showed the project, which I would like to see more of, of the Janine living rooms, oh. I immediately thought of Joe Sacco right. and his, his book on Gaza, which took me, right. you know, five hours to read, right. a, a visual right. piece of journalism, which goes to great depth, really, in terms of the history, his, his position as a researcher, um, right. a kind of complexity that I don't think you'd even get on a, uh, on a screen. It's just an old-fashioned book, but it's a guy drawing. You know, he, he actually did for us. He, he drew for us, and we did publish some on the screen. But you're right. It's, but look, you know, if photography started in you know, 1839 or whatever the date, it's kind of like 1841 right now in terms of digital media. We, 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 you know, there's a fair amount of hubris, but we haven't done very much. One, one more or two more? One more, I think one more question. Um, I will 
Kathleen, are you nearer? It's nearly half past. Thanks. So I'll just I'll just make a, a quick observation that one of the uh, thinking about the the threads that tied the various things that you that you spoke about this evening together um, is a concept of fluidity that we've seen as uh, this move from uh, from analog to digital is is a move from from fixed to flowing in many ways that a photograph is no longer a picture is is, is no longer a moment of time it's a series of of, uh, of data points that could be manipulated to any effect. <clears throat> and it occurs to me that that uh, running contemporaneously with that change in photography is the, is the change to a much more fluid media from uh, both from the means of production that you spoke about to the various different ways in which we can consume it from your computer to my iPad to my phone, etc. Um, and along with that, we, we're seeing this fluidity of narrative occur the examples that you spoke of this evening and, and some really interesting things that are happening with narrative, with, with truly interactive narrative uh, that are really combining fiction and theater and media in really interesting ways that we're starting to see appear. Um, and, and I'm thinking about my, my sort of social circle and how we're starting to see a lot of fluidity appear in, in sort of the sense of personal meaning. Uh, you know, we, we, I have friends who, who grew up Christian or Jewish or, or Buddhist or Islamic, and, and, and now there's this huge blending of bits of ideas from all of these things coming together as people are starting to sort of form their own definitions of this more fluid um, uh, sense, of, sense of meaning and spirituality and purpose. And um, it, it's just, it's, that's a really hopeful message that I took away from, from the talk, that we're moving from something that was really sort of static to something that has got a less, much less sort of global universal meaning to something that we've, we can all sort of define on our own. And that's really challenging in a lot of ways, and it does have some really significant downsides, but it's also got a really hopeful series of upsides that go along with it. No, no, I appreciate that. I, I, what I'm, I think those things are happening. I, I really do agree with you tremendously that they are happening, but there's kind of an interesting moment if one is the reader and the producer simultaneously, which one is? If you read the web as a hypertext, you're always both the reader and the producer. Whatever your pathways are, you're producing different pathways. So you're creating your own narrative daily. You're creating your own front page. You're creating Those are really great things. They're fine things to do. But it's also, how does one figure out how to pinpoint in society the places where it makes sense to intervene at this point. You know, not, not simply to the fluidity, which is extraordinary, but where are those pressure points? Where are those points where you could use media, you know, to, you know, I, I was at a conference last year, a kind of a uh, Indian mystic, uh, you know, re refuge on image and voices of hope. And every hour, a gong went off. And for one minute, we closed our eyes. And if I was speaking, I'd stop. For one minute, we stopped. That answers the slowing down kind of a thing. But they enforced it. And everybody went with it. You had the greatest idea in the world, but it could wait a minute. You could stop. You know, I, I tried that. And I, I was, you know, I thought about teaching that way now, you know, with the gong going off. And, and we stopped. You know, tonight, we could have had a gong going off. But what I liked very much was I had to think of my own breathing at that point, and I stopped getting stuck 
in the thought process. So that's a point of intervention. And there are many, many points of intervention. And I think if we're smart about media and if we understand how it works and what it's doing to us, we're not just going to be the patients and the victims, but we're really going to be the, the, the people who make change. And so, you know, what I was trying to get at was the kids in Rwanda or the different things that we've done, polio and so on. We, we want to use this stuff to make change. We want to be assertive. If it's the older media, newer media, whatever, if we can make change in a positive way, if, if hundreds of kids don't get polio because of that, it's great. You know, I, I woke up every day and said, what am I going to do? I'm going to work. I'm trying to end a disease globally. That's what I'm trying to do today. It's the best feeling I ever had. Forget working at the New York Times. It was fantastic. And we could use these things in important ways, but we have to use them. And we have to understand we're the producers, we're distributors, we have power. It's not just those other people with those who have the power. It's not just top-down anymore. And as all this stuff happens, we have to be aware of it use it, synthesize it, push it, and, and try to make things you know, go in the directions that make sense for us. So thank you all very much. So I, I would like to thank you for such a stimulating talk, and he's done what any good speaker has, should do, and that is I think he's left us all with more questions than, than answers, which is fabulous. And I am completely fascinated with how this is going to change us, and, you know, that we, yes, we should be conscious of it, not just be go, riding along on the wave. If anybody has nostalgia about the old ways of making photographs, Maya Sutnik will be talking next Wednesday in the Princeton Drawing Center, and it's a fascinating story. It's photographer Henrik Ross recorded the daily struggles of the Jewish community in a ghetto in Poland during the Nazi regime. At, regime. at the time of the final liquidation of the population in 1944, he buried the negatives in frozen ground in an attempt to save this historical record. And some of them got moldy, but some of them were saved. So that's, we also have a talk on in here at the same time on General Idea, a panel, which will also be very good. So thank you very much for a wonderful talk. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.